Apologetic series starts today and the conference this uh, coming weekend we'll talk about in a second. Uh, apologetics, so, so first of all, right off the bat, uh, everybody just lean over, lean over to next to you and pick up your hands like this just pick, and put it on your, this is your thinking cap. You're gonna have to put it on this morning, okay? We're going deep, we're going heavy. We're gonna put it on. Some of you have not been in school in a long time. Uh, for me, it feels like a long time since I've been out of school because I'm always constantly in school, it feels like. But, but you pick it up your thinking cap, put it back on. Ladies, some of you are gonna have to do this for your husband because he's already drooling on himself right now and we haven't even started, okay? Just nudge him, pick it up, put it on his head. All right, apologetics. What is apologetics right off the bat? Apologetics is defending your faith. It's giving reasonable answers to questions people ask you about your faith. That's what apologetics really is. And so it's defending uh, your faith. It's giving reasons for why you believe what you believe. So if somebody questions your beliefs and you respond, that's an apologetic. Has nothing to do with apologizing. I always have to make that disclaimer because there's always somebody like, why are we apologizing? It is not apologizing, it is an apologetic. Comes from the Greek word apologia. It means like if you are in the court of law and somebody is charging you with something and you are defending yourself, you are giving your apologia, your apologetic. Actually, a cool story that that paints this picture. Uh, Aristotle was charged with uh, promoting other gods and he was put into court for that and he gave his famous apologia, which his star pupil that you know, a guy by the name of Plato, later talked about and gave a whole dialogue about called the apology or apologia in Greek. And so that's where it comes from. The word apologia or apologetic, the word apologia is used 17 times in the New Testament uh, and every time or virtually every time it's something translated something like defense or vindication. For instance, the most famous apologetic verse is 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15. It says this, always be prepared to give a defense or apologia. This is your apologetic. Always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, don't be a jerk. Okay? Some apologists are jerks. Don't be a jerk. Be kind, be sweet, be loving, be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, but defend what you believe. Don't just, um, so, so be a thanking Christian. Don't just uh, allow Christianity to come to you. Uh, I'll probably say this at other points. I oftentimes do, but some people think Christianity or faith in general is a leap in the dark, but Hebrews tells us that faith is the evidence of things unseen, the, the, the evidence and substance. There's evidence and there's substance to faith. It's not a blind leap in the dark. That's why this series is called Evidence of Things Unseen. It's got evidence to it. So that's why we're gonna talk about some of that evidence this morning. If you enjoy it this morning, two things. One, Apologetics Conference this Friday and Saturday. You're gonna love it. I'm just telling you now, Friday night, uh, Dr. Joe Davis from Southeastern University will be speaking on near-death experiences and how that is evidence for God. It's really cool stuff. I've actually heard this lecture from him before. It's really good. But that's Friday night and this Saturday is gonna be amazing as well. There is a Q&A lunch you can sign up for on Saturday that we added in later on. So some people missed that. So sign up for that if you would like to do that as well. Um, uh, Saturday at noon. Um, and then also, if you enjoy apologetics, I do have a small group, uh, which usually is not very small. It's a large group, but uh, I do have a small group that does apologetics every other Tuesday. Once we get into group season, you can sign up for that as well. All right, so we got our thinking caps on, right? Okay. David, the psalmist David, once said this. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Many of you have memorized that verse, right? You've heard that before, many of you. But think about it. The heavens declare the glory. So so I'm declaring something. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. What are the heavens declaring? What are the skies proclaiming? What if God is speaking to you in a way that you cannot see because you're actually so very close to it? So as I mentioned a second ago, Ada and I were on vacation the last two weeks. Praise the Lord, it was awesome. Back refreshed, you guys get to be the victims of the first sermon back. (laughs) So we were excited. One of the things we did the other day was I went to the Illusion Museum in Orlando. Anybody been there? It's kind of cool. All these uh, museum stuff, all these illusions. You see like, uh, for instance, the bottom left-hand corner, it's that room that's 
symmetry is used to make me look small, make the kids look big. The sideways room in the middle, on the bottom right, Ada's there with the kids and Elijah's sitting in a chair, but that's not actually a chair. It's an illusion of a chair. You'd have to be there to understand that one. But there's all these illusions uh, that, you, that you have there. Uh, one of them that caught my eye on the way out was an illusion of Einstein. Go to the next picture. Um, this picture of Einstein is interesting because when you're up close to it, you cannot see it at all. In fact, you stand up next to it, you're like, what in the world is this? It's all these images and numbers. He's the king of numbers, right? And so he's all these images. But as you step back, it starts to become apparent. In fact, if you could see with my eyes right now from where I'm standing from, I cannot tell that's Einstein. I would be willing to bet you guys in the back go, oh, that's obviously Einstein, right? The closer you are, the, least, the less you can see it. The further back you are, the more obvious it becomes. Sometimes you can be so close to something that you don't see the grandeur of what is trying to be presented until you take some steps backwards. Are you with me? What I want to do this morning is take some steps backwards. You know, it said the fish is the last animal to discover water. Why? Because it's all around them. They don't see what everybody else can see. You may not be able to see the grandeur that God wants to reveal to you because it's all around you and so obvious in the midst of your normal life. So in this message, what we're going to do over the next few moments is use science, not just the Bible, to paint a picture of who God is. Some people have this idea uh, that science and God are at war. I can tell you that cannot be further from the truth. That is absolutely ridiculous. Science and God are not at war. In fact, Christians started science in order to better understand God. Is this my mic? Christians started science, yeah, somebody hand me a handheld if, if it's gonna keep doing that, I don't know why it's doing that. Christians started science in order to uh, 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 better understand God. They thought if I, can understand, if I can understand the creation, then I can better understand the creator. So physical science as we know today was started by Christians who thought I could better understand God. So there's, there's two ways, two general specific ways of understanding God. Thank you. One is called general revelation. The other is called special revelation. Uh, general revelation uh, works like this. General revelation is anything that's kind of, uh, you find God in science or philosophy or, or mathematics or logic or any place like that. It's something outside of the Bible. Where did this go? There you go. Pete, can you take this? Where's Pastor Kieran? He's always trying to get me to use that. See what happens? Pastor Kieran's like, all the cool preachers use that thing. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just teasing. He doesn't really say that. He alludes to it. Um, so general revelation is finding God through general things. And uh, the book of Proverbs starts out, you have wisdom calling to the young man from the streets, right? Where, where's that? You get wisdom from this. You can find God everywhere. You can find God anywhere. Um, however, you also have special revelation. That's kind of the word of God. That's the Bible itself. You're never going to know details without the Bible. It's special revelation. But general revelation you can get from science and logic and reason and all of these other areas like that, philosophy, uh, these other areas. And so what we need to see is that God is trying to speak to us not only through the Bible, but through the heavens declaring and the skies proclaiming through science and logic and reason in these other things. But what happens sometimes is we get so close that we can't actually see it. In fact, in fact, I know I'm going to skip around a little bit, Tony, but Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul's writing here to the Romans and he's saying, listen, even if you don't have our theology, even if you don't have our quote Bible that they didn't exactly have at the time, but you get the idea, you can still see the attributes of God through creation, which again is why we studied creation in the first place. The problem that begins to happen is that we get so close to creation that we never take a step back to see the grandeur of creation. Does that make sense? So what are you talking about? Let me explain it the best way I know how, which is by letting Morgan Freeman explain it. This is a little longer than we usually do, but uh, you'll see the purpose behind it. Let's take a step back and see the grandeur of God's creation through this video. Go ahead. 
Since the universe is a big place, we could easily get lost. So we'll need signposts to give us a sense of scale. The acrobat's ring is one meter wide. The crowd is 10 times wider, 10 meters across, larger by one power of 10. Now, with every step, every ring, we travel 10 times farther from Venice, and our view of the universe is 10 times wider. The 100-meter ring surrounds St. Mark's, and 1,000 meters, one kilometer, the city center. As our speed increases, four steps, four powers of 10, reveal all the islands of Venice, the Adriatic Sea, and the mainland of northern Italy. Six steps, take in Europe from central Germany across Italy to the Balkans. And soon we can see the entire planet, our home in space. Eight steps on our outward journey, eight powers of 10, and we pass the farthest reaches of human travel, the moon. visualize the paths that the nine planets take in their orbits around the sun. At 13 steps from St. Mark's Square, the entire solar system comes into view. And with 15 steps, 15 powers of 10, we can see that our sun is just another star. From here on, our voyage will be measured in light years, the distance light travels in an entire year. Only now do we fly past our nearest neighbor stars, almost five light years away. The same journey at the speed of today's spacecraft would last 100,000 years. As we cross the perpetual night, our voyage takes us up and out of our sun's neighborhood near the edge of a great pinwheel of stars. just one of a hundred billion stars in it. At this immense scale, 23 powers of 10, each shining light we see is not a star, but an entire galaxy composed of countless stars. Astronomers have discovered that the galaxies are flying away from one another. The universe is expanding. Our own galaxy and all the others form clusters and superclusters of stupendous size, hundreds of millions of light years across. And here, about 15 billion light years from Venice, we approach the outer limits of the visible universe. What lies beyond this cosmic horizon, we cannot see and do not know. Why is it everything sounds smarter when Morgan Freeman narrates it? If I had a Morgan Freeman voice, we'd have 10,000 people in our church. I'm convinced of that. Anyway, 
So we take a step back and you begin to experience the grandeur of the universe. So let me tell you scientifically and philosophically a little bit the story of our universe starts like this. If you were to go back to Aristotle, really, uh, the early philosophers, Aristotle was the first, started being a proponent that the earth was eternal, or I'm sorry, the universe was eternal, had no beginning, had no end. That was the assumed truth for a very long time. And uh, and for a couple thousand years, uh, it was just the assumed truth. The universe always always was. It always will be. Um, That began to change. And by the way, that was an issue with Christianity because in Genesis 1, what happens? God creates. There's a start. There's a, there's a beginning, right? There, there was nothing and then there was something. Um, and so that be, was an issue until the early 20th century uh, when Einstein's theory of general relativity was published in 1915. It began to show that the universe had to have a beginning. Shortly after that, Edwin Hubble looked through his famous Hubble t- telescope and looked and saw the radiation afterglow from the original bang or from what they call the Big Bang now. And then, uh, a little while after that, you had the second law of thermodynamics that was discovered and all of these things started to paint this picture that the universe wasn't eternal. It actually had a start, that there was a moment where everything began. When I say everything, I mean everything. (laughs) And there was this moment where everything that we know of today began. If you go back before the Big Bang, scientifically, before whatever banged, banged, before the Big Bang, there was nothing. Somebody say, no thing. Now, scientists sometimes will talk about highly charged space molecules and stuff like that, space particles. There was no thing. Scientifically, there was nothing, and then there was something. Now, I'm not the brightest person, but it's hard for me to believe that nothing created everything. But that's another message for another time. So there was nothing. We can't even comprehend nothing. Aristotle said nothing is what rocks dream about. We can't even comprehend it. If you try to comprehend nothing, you're still thinking of something. You're thinking of a, a, a black room or, or a white room or whatever. You're, you're, think, you're trying to attempt to think of nothing. You can't even comprehend nothing because you were born into a world with something. So, so this idea that there was nothing begins to be this place that we have to start at. Robert Jastrow, he's the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies and astronomer and physicist. He said this, a sound explanation may exist for the explosive birth of the universe, but if it does, science cannot find out what the explanation is. The scientist's pursuit of the past ends in the moment of creation. Now, with what I just told you, what I just explained to you. Let me give you 10 things that the heavens are declaring. We're not going to use the Bible very much. We're going to use science. We're going to use a little philosophy with it to understand it. But 10 things the heavens are declaring. They're going to come at you relatively quickly. I don't always tell you to take notes, but take notes, man. This is good stuff this morning. Somebody just go ahead and nudge your husband, put the thinking cap back on him. He's drooling again. He got lost in a Morgan Freeman video. Okay. Number one, God must be timeless and eternal. God must be timeless and eternal or timeless slash eternal. Uh, In other words, he must be, if we were using a theological word, he must be infinite. So what are you talking about? How does that play into it? What you may have learned or may have not learned is before the big bang, before whatever banged, banged, there was no time. When I say there was nothing, no thing, there was nothing. Time did not exist. Therefore, whatever was outside of what we now call time that started everything, whatever banged, has to be outside of time or eternal. He would have no need for a beginning or no need for an end. And this is not just a theological idea. This is what science shows us, that whatever banged has to be outside of time because time was started at that at that very moment, which by the way, is a very good reason to pray differently. I'm going to give you a lot of little prayer points as we go around too, because some people pray like God is inside of time, but God can listen to your prayer for eternity because he can step outside of it. So, so this is a little book right here. It's called the Bible. Maybe you've seen it before. I know some of you are like, no, it's on my phone. No, this is really it. This is one of them. It's a little one. So I'm outside of the Bible right now, which means I can then open the Bible's full of stories, thousands of years of history. I can step as a person that's outside of the Bible. I can open it to any place I want to. I'm just going to randomly choose. All right, this is Psalm. Oh, no, wait, this is Isaiah. This is really small print. Isaiah chapter 66, uh, verse 12. This is just random. It says, for thus says the Lord. One, two, three, 
four, five. The fifth verse right there is Lord. Because I'm outside of this book, I can then think on that word Lord. I can close Lord right there. It can stay right there. That, that word's not going anywhere. I'm outside of it. I can ponder the word Lord for the rest of my life. And I'm, and I'm finite. I'm not infinite. But I can ponder it for the rest of my life. What, what am I saying? God is outside of time. How is it that God can see the past, the present, and the future? I can read the stories in Genesis and the stories in Revelation. At any moment I want to, I can step into those portions of time because I'm outside of the book. God is outside of time. He can step into the portions of time. Are y'all with me? I'm telling you, some of you guys can make your brain hurt a little bit. But, but I can step into it. God can step into time at any time he chooses and he can step out, which means your prayer request, he can hear it, step out of time for what would seem like your entire lifetime to ponder it, step right back in in order to declare an answer to it. That's good, somebody. It's incredible. God's outside of time, but, 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 but the Bible doesn't just tell us that. Whatever banged had to be outside of time. Therefore, if we put deposit God into that spot, then God must be outside of time too. Therefore, you're never taking up God's time. Sometimes we treat God like, we're, like he's too busy for us. God's never been too busy for you. He has an infinite amount of time to think on you alone. I'm telling you, there's smoke coming out of some of your ears. All right, number two, which comes right off of that, God must, have needed, must not have needed a cause. <clears throat> sometimes we get this image uh, that, that people ask us sometimes as apologists. And they said, well, well, God created everything, whatever, but who created God? Well, that's a logical fallacy. Nobody need to, needed to create God because God's outside of time. God created time. And when you're outside of time, you don't need a beginning and you don't need an end. You are, you are, you are uh, uh, timeless. You are self-existent. Now, in our minds, again, that makes our minds hurt because we've only experienced time. We don't want to know what life is outside of time. One day you will in heaven, but right now you don't know what life is outside of time. But here's the deal. If you are outside of time, there's no, meet, there's no reason to have a beginning or an end. You are infinite. You are outside of time, logically. And it's funny how science now shows that whatever banged in the beginning had to be that way, but theology has been saying that for thousands of years about God. You catching on to a pattern here. Number three, God must be spaceless, must be spaceless or this thing that we would call omnipresent, big philosophical, theological word that just means present everywhere. Omni, all present, omnipresent. God must be everywhere. He must be all present. Whatever banged created space. Now, when I say space, people generally think space like Morgan Freeman video space, and you're thinking outer space. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about space between things, distances. There was no distance before that was created whenever whatever banged, banged, and we're depositing God in that slot. There was no distance between things. There was no space. Therefore, whatever banged is spaceless or has the ability to be everywhere at once, Omni present. <laughs> he was not limited to space like you and I are limited to space. We can be in one place at a time. God could be everywhere because he's outside of space and can step into it in the book illustration. Are you with me? God can be everywhere, present everywhere, all present. He is outside of space. Now that's what science says, but I do recall somebody also writing like 3,000 years ago, this guy by the name of David, and he wrote this famous Psalm in 139. He said, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence? Your spirit, I should have said. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle in the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. In other words, you cannot escape the very presence of God. To some people, that's a good thing. To some of you, that's a very scary thing. He sees everything that's done behind closed doors. That's a beautiful thing. It's also a scary thing. But the point here is not to, not to charge you with something. The point here is to paint this picture that according to science, whatever banged had to be omnipresent, the ability to be everywhere at once because they're outside of space. Space, time, and, and matter were all created in that moment, which is the very next thing. Number four, God must be outside of matter, or the word would be immaterial, outside of matter. What banged? Again, there was nothing. There was nothing, and then there was something. 
When we say nothing, one of those things that it means, and the most obvious one, is that there was nothing material, no physical thing. It was immaterial. Whatever was there prior to the Big Bang was immaterial, or you could also use this word maybe, spiritual. And so God created everything out of nothing. Or I could say it this way, God used nothing to create everything. So, so, so God is immaterial. Whatever banged had to be immaterial. It, re- it reminds me when I talk about this of the old story. I'm sorry if you're blonde. I don't mean to make fun of you, but this is a dumb blonde joke. <clears throat> it reminds me of the old story of the blonde that's walking around the grocery store for a long period of time. And she seems to be a little lost, can't find what she's looking for. So finally, the uh, grocery store clerk goes up to her and says, listen, ma'am, I see you keep walking around for a long time. Can I help you find something? And she said, yes, I'm looking for scratch. My mom made everything from scratch. Okay, God didn't even have scratch to work with, right? He had nothing, and out of nothing, he used nothing to create everything. And when I say nothing, of course, God was there, but there was nothing material. He is immaterial. That's saying this for thousands of years. Science is just now catching up to that. It's funny how that happens over and over. Now, this is where it gets even more fun. Number five, God must be unimaginably powerful, incredibly powerful, or you could use this theological word, omnipotent. Omni again, all potent, powerful, omnipotent. Whatever banged in the beginning had to have more, now y'all need to lean in for this, had to have more power than all of the universe combined for the entire time of the universe and it's still not running out. According to the second law of thermodynamics, also called the law of entropy, once something starts, it begins to lose energy. That's fairly obvious to all of us. A great example is a gunshot. When you shoot a gun, uh, the bullet fires out of the gun, but it will never go faster than the moment that it comes out of the barrel of the gun. It slowly begins to, or rapidly actually, begins to slow down and before long it's going to hit the ground and actually stop movement total. Uh, while we were on vacation, Ty and I were watching an old baseball movie, and it just made me start thinking, like, how much faster are pitchers pitching today than they were, say, in the 1950s or 60s? And it was just made me, in my own little mind, curious. And so I started looking this stuff up about baseball pitchers, and I found something interesting that had nothing to do with that, but I found something interesting that the speed of a baseball takes a lot, uh, uh, it really matters where you measure it at. The moment it comes out of the pitcher's hand, it's going a lot faster than the moment right before it hits the catcher's glove. In fact, it's six to seven to eight miles an hour difference from the time it comes out of their hand to the time it hits the glove. That's, that's a lot in a matter of, what is that? What is that, 70 feet? What is that? Whatever that is. I don't know, I'm not, but in that short distance, it changes quite a bit in the miles per hour. Why? Second law of thermodynamics. It comes out hot and slows down. You just heard from Morgan Freeman that the universe is expanding and you know Morgan Freeman doesn't lie. So, so, so the universe is expanding. We all know about this during COVID. It's like a giant sneeze. It's like you sneezed and all of this shot out, but it's never going faster than the moment it came out of your mouth and it slowly begins to go down. According to science, a whole nother subject, but according to science, the universe will eventually collapse back upon itself and run out of the usable energy. It eventually will collapse back upon itself, which is also a biblical thing, by the way. That's not part of this message though. So God must be incredibly powerful because it's not just how much energy is in the entire universe right now. That would be phenomenal by itself. It's how much energy has ever been in the history of the universe, in the universe. He has have to have at least that much power. This is incredible. This is unimaginably powerful. And by the way, he hasn't run out of usable energy yet. You could say that God's power is infinite, at least by our standards. It seems omnipotent. He seems all-powerful, which, by the way, is another prayer point for you because some of us pray to an all-powerful God like he's a weak man. You got so many images of the wizard from some movie you saw that you picture God as this old man with a long beard, and he's kind of weak and feeble, but he's got wisdom. Listen, We get excited when God heals somebody. Listen, healing somebody to God is like blinking. His power is so much greater than anything we can fathom. Fathom. It's so much greater. 
And we think somehow we're pulling on God's power to do something or this and that. Listen, his power is so much greater. That's why we come to him with faith, believing what he's going to do and what he's capable of doing, not coming to him with puny prayers of, God, can you do this? And if you wouldn't mind and, you know, whatever. But it's funny how theologians have been talking about an omnipotent God for a long time, but now science shows that whatever banged in the beginning, whatever started everything, whatever got all this going had to be essentially omnipotent or incredibly powerful. Number six, God must be extraordinarily intelligent. This is where I, I don't have human words to really define what I'm trying to say because extraordinarily is not even, not even doing it justice either. <coughs> but the universe is unbelievably and intricately designed all the way down to quantum mechanics in the very smallest parts of the human body and in the very smallest parts of things, all the way to the grander like you just saw in our cosmic voyage with, with Morgan Freeman, the universe has this incredible design to it that it's organized and that it works well. It makes sense. And that's evidence of an ex extremely intelligent somebody getting it going. You know, you can, you can tell somebody's ability by their design, whether it's simple or complex. Right. So, so for instance, um, you know, many of us just send our children back to school, a kindergartner's project that they bring home in a college seniors project that they bring home should not look the same. <laughs> one design should be much greater than the other design. Why? Because one comes from a deeper intellect. It comes from a lot more understanding, a lot more knowledge. Well, the design of the universe is so complex, so extraordinary. Your human body, we could talk at length, we could talk for hours on your human body. It's just ridiculous the way you were made, but it's so much bigger than that. It's the galaxies and the orbits and the solar system and, and the way everything is designed is just incredible. The old philosopher David Hume said, the whole frame of nature bespeaks an intelligent author and no rational inquirer can, after serious reflection, suspend his belief for a moment with regard to the primary principles of genuine theism and religion. Listen, this is not a simple design like a snowflake. This is a complicated design like a Lamborghini or anybody ever seen an F-22 Raptor? I'm still like amazed by those planes. They take off straight up, those, those planes. It's incredibly complicated design. But it's funny because we've talked for a long time in theology about how God is all-knowing and how God is incredibly intelligent, omniscient. But now it seems that whatever banged according to science also had to be. Number seven, God must be in control. So it's not just that he created everything and has to have the intelligence to it. He must be also in control. This universe is incredibly large. It's, it's this incredibly giant spiral that's going out and expanding at all times. And we got to measure it in light years. It's so big. And our Milky Way galaxy alone has 100 billion stars. Yet everything functions perfectly together. Everything holds together. You know what Colossians chapter one said? Paul said this, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Here's a question for you. Uh, scientists and all of us really, but, but, but we discover things all the time that were always there. We just now found them out, right? Physics was always there. We just discovered what was already there. Mathematics was always there. We just discovered what was always already there. Logic, reason, uh, these different philosophical terms, these were always there. We just discovered what was always there hidden for us. Who put those there? Who is holding them together there to make them constant? Why doesn't physics change? Who's holding it together? Hmm, I'm, so, I'm sorry, put your thinking cap back on, stop drooling on yourself. But who put it there? It's interesting. So, so, so Colossians says he's holding all things together in this inc incredibly ordered universe. You know, the Greek not only had the word apologia, but they also had this word that meant ordered universe. It was the word cosmos. They also had a word for disordered universe. You know what it's called? Chaos. <laughs> you had cosmos and chaos. They're the opposite of one another. The opposite of chaos is our cosmos that's ordered together, that's put together. See, God has everything in his hands. He is organizing it. You still see him uh, controlling it. You still see that things are still working the way they're supposed to be. It wasn't like God just set a timer and set it off. He's still organizing and, and controlling the world. We could say it this way to help all of us. He's got the whole world in his hands. 
right? He's got the whole wide world in his hands. But theology didn't just tell us that. Science did. Interesting, isn't it? See, perhaps the most, the greatest example of this, <coughs> scientifically, not biblically, but perhaps the greatest example of this is right after the Big Bang, literally one, and I'm trying to do this from memory, but it's right, one ten million billion billion billionth of a second after the Big Bang. The second it bangs, like not even the second, the one ten billion billion billion, one ten million billion 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 of a second after whatever banged banged, an absolute miracle took place that there is no accounting for in science still to this day. When it banged, you had matter and antimatter, and according to physics, you always have equal amounts. We should know that, or if you might remember that from school, there's always equal amounts, always. But in the moment of the Big Bang, immediately, one ten million, one ten million billion, 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 in that moment, there was one billion to one compared to one billion matter to antimatter which is what allowed the universe to form in the first place. The greatest miracle that we may ever see is the one nobody's ever talking about. It's the very fact the universe was ever formed in the first place. There is no logical scientific reason that that should ever, ever happen. Antimatter and matter have to be equal for things to function. But all of a sudden, in that one instance, in that one instance, it wasn't. But don't just take my word for it. Watch this quick video on matter and antimatter. Antimatter is the mirror image of ordinary matter. However, matter has one charge, and antimatter has the opposite charge. If there was an anti-me made out of antimatter, that person in principle could look exactly like me. Same personality quirks, same everything, except of course when I decide to shake his hand. At that point, we both would blow ourselves to smithereens in a gigantic nuclear explosion. Matter with a positive charge clashes with antimatter with a negative charge. The fate of the universe hangs in the balance of this epic battle. Equal amounts of matter and antimatter will cancel each other out. And it's not good. A universe with equal amounts of matter and antimatter is equivalent to a universe with no matter at all. Because the matter and antimatter will annihilate back into pure radiation and there'll be nothing interesting, no stars and galaxies and people in between. It was a cosmic battle, and the side with the most forces would win. It was very close, but there was one winner. For every billion particles of antimatter, there were a billion and one particles of matter. That was the moment of creation. The one extra particle of matter in each little volume survives. Survives enough to form all the matter we see in the stars and galaxies today. One in a billion might not sound like much, but it's enough to build a universe. Still to this day, scientists are trying to figure this out. It makes no sense. It is against all physics. Why should this happen? It's almost like something or someone or what have you purposely created an imbalance in favor of matter and subsequently life. It's interesting. It's interesting. He's got the whole world in his hands. But the Bible doesn't just say that. Science points to that. Number eight, God must be personal. It must be personal. Why? This is a real quick one. Um, but impersonal forces don't make decisions and it appears to be that whatever created, whatever banged outside of all of this seems to, for reasons we're about to continue on talking about, seems to have purposely created something, purposely set things in motion. It was the first mover as Aristotle would talk about it. It seems to have started everything and impersonal forces don't make choices. Uh, matter doesn't just make choice. If you pop your, your Coke can and it fizzes, the Coke did not decide to fizz. It simply did what the molecules do. It didn't make a decision. There seems to be a decision that's been made that shows that God must be personal because impersonal forces don't make choices. And this is important because God is not just a cosmic force. 
He's not Star Wars. May the force be with you. He's not, he's not the cosmic force. The, the, the Holy Spirit of God is a force, but he is not, uh, he is not, he's not a cosmic force in that way. He's a force to be reckoned with. Uh, so we get this idea of a force, this, this Buddhist idea that God is just in all and of all, and that's not the case at all. You get this practical, personal picture of God, and you see that both from science and from the word of God. So you see that there. Number nine, God must be caring or you could say loving. Theological word, once again, omnibenevolent. All loving, all loving. Why is that? Well, this is something you don't usually think about until again, we take a step back from the Einstein picture, and then all of a sudden we see it. But I want you to see this because it's so important. Scientists call the area that we live in a Goldilocks zone. That's what they refer to it as, Goldilocks zone. Y'all remember the story of Goldilocks? Don't make me have to tell that story all over again. You're not five, okay? The story of Goldilocks, this idea that the bed was not too hard, not too soft, the soup was not too hot, not too cold, whatever. It was just right. Just right. Scientists refer to the area that we live in as a Goldilocks zone because it is just right. Now, the other way of saying that is they talk about anthropic principles. Anthropic principles are constants that allow life to happen here. Uh, there's at least 122 of them. There's more, but there's 122 defined ones. There's things like gravity that if it were slightly more, slightly less, we would all die. Uh, things like uh, Jupiter blocks uh, comets from hitting us. Uh, things like uh, the, the, the solar... Um, uh, 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 what's it called? The, uh, the solar orbit uh, is steady. And if it were slightly faster or slower, we would fall out of orbit. The oxygen level, the atmospheric transparency, there's literally 122 of these things that all paint this picture that it's just right. It's like we were planned to be here. You know what it reminds me of? Um, Y'all remember some of you when you had your first child and you did everything you could to make the world perfect for that first child coming into the world. By your third child, you could care less. But the first one, <clears throat> you painted the baby room. You got the, pers the perfect bassinet. You had the little airplane thing going over the top of it. You made sure the paint colors didn't hurt their little eyes. You had the right music playing for them. You, you, you did everything perfectly just for that child. Now the third child, you could care less if they hit their head on the corner. You didn't put that thing there. You, you took the whole like plastic things out of the light sockets. And you're like, if they stick their fingers in there, they do, whatever. You know, but it, the first one, the first one, you know, you really, really took care of them, right? Come on, all my third children be like, third or beyond, just give me an amen. amen. You, know, you grew up hard, man. You grew up hard. Hand-me-downs and beat up. Anyway. <laughs> the universe that we live in, the galaxy that we live in, this anthropic area, this Goldilocks zone, seems like somebody was excited you were coming and planned it all perfectly for you. It's interesting. It's interesting. And so you get all these anthropic constants that just seems like somebody organized it just for you and I. Now, now, I know there's always somebody that you say, well, they found another Earth-like planet. Let me just help you out with this. There is no other Earth-like planet. I hate all the, make everybody mad about aliens or whatever, but they say those things to get you to watch documentaries. An Earth-like planet might have one element from our periodic table or something. It's far from Earth-like far from Earth-like. But don't just take my word for it. Dr. Hugh Ross, astrophysicist, made this video you're about to watch, and it's a mixture of both truth with a little bit of comedy in it to make the point. But watch this video. How likely is our planet Earth? Let's see if life-sustaining planets truly are likely. The galaxy is huge, about a hundred billion stars. That's a hundred thousand millions. A star has to be in the right part of the galaxy to host life. It can't be too close to the center because of the bone-bleaching x-ray and flesh-melting radiation levels. However, it can't be too far out because the heavy elements needed for life are out of stock way yonder in the boondocks. So, 99.7% of stars can't support life. We've narrowed that original 100 billion down to 300 million stars. You need a stable star with a reliable astrosphere and ultraviolet qualities that you can take home and introduce to your parents. Unless you want to turn all living things into a thermo-mutant toxic sludge 
Only a yellow dwarf star in its main sequence will do. All other stars are deadbeats and planet beaters. This eliminates 96% of stars as candidates with which life can fall in love, settle down, and start a family. We now have 12 million stars. There must be planets around the star, and they must be the right distance away. Like in-laws, not too close on date night, but not too far away when the kids are driving you nuts. 80% of discovered planets won't support life because of their distance from their host star. This 80% subtracts the number to 2.4 million planets to look at as possible candidates for habitability. Tidal locking eliminates 28%, planet size another 83%, and axis tilt another 64%. If any of these are off by a little, they will kill all biological life in ways that even Jack the Ripper would disapprove of. This brings the pool of possible life-sustaining planets down to about 100,000. But we're not done yet. Elliptical orbits, electric wind, and long rotation rates make biological life less likely than an Elvis comeback tour. These criteria shave our number of possible planets down to about 4,000. We must account for the right orbital length, livable atmospheric composition, plate tectonics, and the need for large outer planets. Having the wrong amounts of any of these would be more deadly than skinny dipping in a lava pool. After all these criteria, we are left with a very small number of available planets. What's the number? 0.7 planets. Outside of the half-finished Death Star, planets generally come in quantities of one or more. The 15 criteria that we've looked at so far have statistically eliminated the chance that life could randomly occur in a galaxy the size of the Milky Way. But wait, we've only considered 15 criteria. We still have hundreds to go. Water availability, atmospheric pressure, nutrients, rocky composition, orbital bodies, binary star systems, the rarity of an ozone layer, the unknowns concerning abiogenesis, and about a million other things. Even though we have a hundred billion, there are not nearly enough stars in the Milky Way galaxy to make randomly occurring life anywhere near plausible. The more we learn from science, the more we see that this world is incredibly, impossibly, indubitably unlikely. Maybe, just maybe, life-sustaining planets aren't random at all. Hmm. Dr. Hugh Ross, the astrophysicist, estimated the likelihood of the 122 constants coming to existence by chance at 10 to the 138th power. If you forget what 138th power is, that is all zeros, 138 zeros after it, which is more than the estimated numbers or number of atoms in the entire universe. Hey, but don't take my word for it. Arno Panias, the co-discoverer of the radiation afterglow, he said astronomy leads to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, notice that word, and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. Stephen Hawking, the great physicist and cosmologist who passed away a few years ago, also an atheist, he said the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think clearly there are religious implications when we discuss the origins of the universe. There must be religious overtones. Uh, the biochemist Dr. Michael Denton says, uh, all the evidence available in the biology sci biological sciences supports the core proposition that the cosmos is a specially designed whole with life and mankind as its fundamental goal and purpose, a whole in which all facets of reality have their meaning and explanation in this central fact. Here's the thing. We live in an incredibly improbable planet in an incredibly improbable area that seems to be like something out there was helping it become exactly what you and I need to have life 
survive and even thrive. And it's funny that even Earth-like planets, when they find them and they talk about life, they're not talking about humans or even aliens. They're talking about the most simplest of amoeba, which are still not something that's ever been discovered and probably ever will be discovered because it's so unlikely. Stephen Hawking, the, again, atheist, he said, uh, it would be very difficult to explain it all except as an act of God who intended to create beings just like us. Intended to create beings just like us. Say it this way. Isaac Newton said the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets can only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. So how do we respond how do we respond to this amazing universe? You know, modern science calls it the anthropic principle or the Goldilocks zone, two different things, but they touch each other. They call it that way. The Bible simply said this, in the beginning, God created, and then over and over you get this image, it is good. God created land, it is good. Planets, it is good. You know what the anthropic principle really is? It's science saying it is good. But the theologians have been saying it for thousands of years before science finally caught up. So we get this image, it is good. It is good. So how do we respond to this amazing cosmos? You could be somebody that says the universe didn't have a beginning, but of course that would go against science. You could say it popped into place out of nothing, but that's completely illogical. Something, nothing does not create something, especially in the incredible order we have. Or you could say that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there might be some people that you're so scientific that you're closed-minded. I hate that when people are closed-minded to the God idea because that's actually not very scientific at all because science should always lead to wherever it leads. That's the ethic of science should lead to wherever it goes. So don't be close-minded on this idea. In fact, one of the problems that oftentimes happens is science studies material things. When we talk about God, as I've already said, he is immaterial. You cannot find God under a microscope, never will. But you will find the evidence of God everywhere under a microscope. So it's much of what people talk about, the battle between science and faith or science and religion or whatever they want to talk about, it oftentimes really just comes down to that. When we talk about faith, we're not talking about something that fits into scientific discoveries or, or theories. It's like, it's like trying to turn a candle off by turning a light switch off. They're two different things, two different things. So how do we respond <coughs> to this incredible universe? How do we respond? Let me show you how somebody else responded. Some of you will remember this. It was Christmas Eve, 1968. I was not yet born. Some of you were. In 1968, the Apollo 8 mission, which was setting up the famous Apollo 11 mission that you probably watched the movie about, the Apollo 8 missions was setting up for the moon landing and preparing for that, and they were the first people to ever see the backside of the moon. <laughs> not so exciting. It's dark, right? They're the first people to ever go around the moon, see the backside of the moon. Nobody had ever seen it before. They come around the moon... And pictures that you and I take for granted today were taken by others later, but of seeing the earth from a distance. Remember the Einstein photo? I've been living on it all this time, but now I'm taking a step back. And in the midst of the grandeur of the earth from a distance, how did these astronauts respond? Well, Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1968, they went live on televisions all around the United States. Some of you will remember watching this, and this is how they responded by looking at the earth from a distance. And uh, for all the people back on earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. 
Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. How many of you watched that live in 1968? See hands all over? I love that. That's how they responded when they saw the earth for the first time from a distance like that. That's how they responded with their natural eyes. That's how they, how do you respond? Maybe we, we cry out to God because it's in moments like this that you sing because there's something deep inside of our soul that also makes no scientific sense that when we get emotional, we sing out in praise. And so maybe we sing, God of wonders beyond our galaxy. You are holy. You are holy. Or maybe you cry out, how great is our God? Sing with me, how great is our God? Or maybe you go back to this old hymn and sing this. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, they far throughout the universe display. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great the how great the then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great the thou art. How do you respond to this amazing universe when you take a step back from the Einstein picture and it all starts to come together and you go, holy moly, this is incredible. But we live on this planet and like a fish is the last one to discover water, we often are the last ones to discover God's grandeur of what the heavens are declaring in the skies proclaiming about God that have been proclaimed for thousands of years, but are now being verified by modern science. Let me give you the last one. Let me give you the last one. God must want you to know him. What a crazy one to put on there. Like, what do you mean, Pastor? What are you talking about? God must want you to know him. In other words, he must be merciful. Let me ask you this. Why would God create everything in the beginning Plan it all, organize it, hold it together, put it together, put you in this Goldilocks zone, give you all the abilities through modern science today to be able to find him in science. They're almost like breadcrumbs because there is these verses throughout the Bible with this picture that if you will seek the Lord, you will find him. If you will draw close to him, he will draw close to you. And he puts these things out like breadcrumbs going, will you discover me in this? I know you might have never read the Bible, but a person like Hugh Ross that I've mentioned several times was in college in astronomy and in college to be an astronomer and, and, and an astrophysicist. And he's in college and it's while he's in college that he finds God, not through the pages of the Bible, but through the pages of the heavens. The Bible only made it even better and sweeter 
But he begins his relationship with God through understanding of astronomy. God puts these breadcrumbs, these cookie crumbs out for people who are willing to chase after him. And he's declaring from the heavens. It's like that old commercial, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Because I will speak not only in the minuscule of your day, but also in the grandeur of the universe. And I know I read this verse earlier, but I want to read it again for you because it's so powerful in a moment like this. Paul's writing to the church of Romans and talking about people who didn't know the Lord the way they did and didn't have the special revelation that they had. And it says, since what, has made, what, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. My prayer is that now that verse starts to pop off the page and you have a greater understanding of it, that you can find God in all kinds of ways. God went through great links for you to know him. Would you stand up with me around the room? God went through great links for you to know him. He seems to want you to find him. The question is, what do you say? <clears throat> How do you respond to this revelation? How do you respond to this science? How do you respond to this logic, to these physics, to these ideas? How do you respond? Not what does science say, not what does the Bible say, but what do you say? What do you say? How do you respond to these things? Because the proper response is, God, you are Lord, and I surrender over to you and make the one who holds the universe in his hand. Pastor Pete mentioned, I think it's the book of Ezekiel, that says he holds the galaxies in the palm of his hand. <laughs> the one that holds the world in his hand, I can trust to hold my life in his hand as well. You bow your heads and close your eyes with me around this room. Some of you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or today is a day that you need to come back to Christ. You need to give your life over to him and surrender to him and make him Lord of your life, not just Lord of the universe. If that's you, I'm not gonna belabor the moment or wait for a long time, but if that's you, let me pray for you. I'm not gonna call you out, but just, just stick your hand up and wave it at me so I can pray with you around the room. Amen, amen, amen. Come on, pray with me. Say, Jesus, I need you. I'm thankful for this universe, for the beauty you've created and the revelation that it gives me. And from this day forward, I surrender my life completely to you. I repent of my sins and I choose to follow you the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Listen, if you just gave your life to Christ or rededicated your life to Christ, do me a favor, text, text Jesus to 21777 and we would love to start a text relationship with you and, and help you out on that as well. In a few moments, we're gonna have prayer down here and we invite you to come out of your seats and come up and pray with us. Let us agree with you in prayer as well. All right, let me close for everybody else now. Let me wrap up all of this. So according to science, using a little bit of philosophy and logic and reason with it, According to modern science, God must be timeless or eternal, what theologians would call infinite. God must have needed a cause, what theologians have called self-existent for thousands of years. God must be spaceless or omnipresent. God must be outside of matter or immaterial. God must be unimaginably powerful or omnipotent. God must be extraordinarily intelligent or omniscient. God must be in control or sovereign. God must be personal or intimate. God must be caring or loving or omnipresent. And God must want you to know him or be merciful. That's the gospel according to modern science. Looks a lot like the gospel in your Bible. And whether you're reading it from science or reading it from your Bible, find God in it. 
He is there and he's calling out to you. There is not a war between science and theology. There is not a fear you need to have of modern science. There is an understanding that I will find layers and depths of who God is in every area of my life. And oftentimes what we keep discovering is what theologians have been saying for a long time, modern science catches up with. I end with this quote. It's one of my very favorite quote. Robert Jastrow is an astronomer and physicist. He's the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies. In his book, God and Astronomers, one of the last lines in the book, he says this, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) What am I saying? Listen, this is apologetics. This is a confident Christianity. It both brings people to Christ and gives them confidence in what they believe in Christ. This is Apologetics. I hope you can be at the conference with us this next week, in these next few weeks, as we continue on in this Apologetics series.